you have your copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you to turn with us to Luke chapter 1 there in the New Testament. Luke chapter 1, the third book of the New Testament. And so I encourage you to turn with us. As you're making your way there this morning, I want to ask you a question. If you're going to talk to somebody about the Christmas story, where would you begin? Where would you begin? Would you begin with the virgin birth? Or maybe you would start with the shepherds and the angels out in the field. Or maybe you would just fast forward right to the manger scene in Bethlehem. It's interesting that Luke actually doesn't begin in any of those places. In fact, when Luke starts to tell the Christmas story, he doesn't even start with Jesus. And that should cause us to wonder why. Like, Luke, why would you not just get right to the heart of it, brother? Like, get to the chase already. But Luke's telling of this story and the birth of John the Baptist and what's happening has some major implications for our lives and our actual understanding and appreciation and actually belief in the fact that Christ's coming is who he says he is. But I think that causes us to wrestle with some questions like, why do we have such doubts? Like, I don't know if you're having doubts now or you've had had doubts, but the reality is you wrestled at times with, is God really who he says he is? Is this story about Jesus, like, is this even believable? Like, is, is this real? How can I trust something like this? And so our intention is for the next five weeks, Lord willing, we're going to walk through the first two chapters of Luke. And it's Luke who writes to this man by the name of Theophilus. This name is seemingly a real person, but his name is interesting. It literally is a compound word indicating friend of God. And he writes to this individual and he wants him to have certainty, conviction about that Jesus is actually who the scriptures declare him to be. And when, to do that, he begins by telling the story of John. Pick up if you would, beginning in verse 1 of Luke chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. He writes to him and he says, listen, I, I want you to know Theophilus. To have, I want you to have certainty, rock solid hope that what you believe is actually the truth. And that's our hope and prayer this morning. But notice Luke, as he, he says, look, he notice he says, I, I, I've heard these stories. I wasn't an eyewitness myself, but I've heard it from eyewitnesses, from ministers of the word, seemingly the apostles. And, and we know in Luke's who writes this gospel, he also writes the book of Acts. And there we understand, understand that Luke's story had him traveling often with Paul. And so we know that he would have ran into many of the apostles and encountered much of the story of the gospel from eyewitnesses. But he wants us to have absolute certainty that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God and our only Savior. So how can we be sure? How can we be certain? Well, today we're going to look at several things in this beginning of the Christmas story that begins in a place that we wouldn't normally think. We're going to hear about the people and the place, a prophet who has a purpose and ultimately the presence of Christmas that gives us a certainty. So if you would turn with me again to Luke chapter one, let's look at our first focus here, beginning in verse five, this truth, the people of Christmas gives us certainty. The people of Christmas 
actually served to give us certainty. Look what he would, verses 5 to 7. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abjah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So they got the, the pedigree, man. They got it. And they were, verse 6, both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. These are, I mean, these are people who are living faithfully for the Lord. And then verse 7, but they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. I'm just going to be honest. If you're going to start out an epic story, you don't seemingly start out with people who would seemingly be disqualified. And they're not disqualified in the sense of like they've done something wrong. I think Luke is emphatically laboring to that point. He wants us to see that they were both righteous. They're both following the commandments of the Lord. So it's not like, hey, these folks are living these sinful lives and therefore they become barren, like this sense of judgment upon them. Luke's laboring to that end. But there's a struggle here because these folks, right, you would think, man, why did they not have children? All these other people seemingly do. Like there's this tension that comes to us immediately. And it would appear that these people appear hopeless. Notice what he says. Again, verse 7. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. So they've never had children. And now they're both advanced in years. I mean, this is like, we might wonder, like, how would this bring any certainty, right? If, if you're writing to Theophilus to give him certainty, how do these people fit in the story to give certainty? And I think that's what's interesting is, is that if we study the Bible and look and we assume that Theophilus must have had access to the Old Testament scriptures, then maybe he knows some of the stories that you and I know. You see, maybe he knows that, guess what? Yeah, most people probably wouldn't start with these people if you're going to do some great work, but that's not how God works, is it? I mean, we've been reading in Genesis about this barren couple who was old and seemingly could have no children. They were who? Remember? Abraham and Sarah. It just sounds similar, doesn't it? That ultimately God will bring forth Isaac and, and bless ultimately the nations through that? Or consider like back in the days of the priest Eli and his sons were wicked and everybody's wondering like what's going to happen to the priesthood now? And then there was this barren couple named Elkna and Hannah. And what do we do? We find her in the, in the temple. She's praying, asking God to give them a child. And God does and gives them a son by the name of what? Samuel, who become this great prophet. Or think about the story of Ruth. I mean, her husband dies. She's She's a foreigner. She, she, she comes back to Bethlehem, but she's an outsider. She's a Moabite. But God raises up a kinsman redeemer by the name of Boaz. And they have a child. And they ultimately become the great-grandparents of King David. So we might hear this story and think, man, how in the world is God going to use somebody like that? But the truth is, if we think about the Scriptures... We have certainty to say, you know what? That's the exact kind of people God uses. God uses the people that nobody else would use. God loves the people at the end of the kickball line. Like everybody else, like, I'll take them. Like, oh, man, you got Blake, right? I remember being the little brother, right? It's kind of like at the end, like, ah, oh, man, you got your brother, right? And you run out there and they're like, don't do anything stupid. Stay out of the way, right? But God loves the people at the end of the line, the people that everybody else seems to overlook. So may that encourage you. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's you as a kiddo that, man, you're just going to start pausing and praying at your lunch table at school. Or maybe God would use you and your family to, hey, you know what, when family draw, gathers for Christmas, maybe nobody prayed before Thanksgiving. And maybe it's just going to be you that starts that simple time of just praying. Maybe there's others here who God's just beginning to serve you to, or, or to stir your heart to begin serving in an area of the church or helping teach. Maybe it's God who's going to use you to 
preach the word or become another missionary out of Greensburg Baptist Church. I, I don't know what it is, but you may feel like, man, there's no way God could use me. But actually, that's the very people God so often uses. And so God using people like this actually brings certainty. But it's not just the people. Look further at me, verses 8 to 11. It's also the place of Christmas that gives us certainty. It's the place, not only the people, but also the place. Look what he says, verse 8. Now, while he, speaking of Zechariah, was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside the hour, outside of the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Did you notice where is Zechariah in this text? Where is he? He's in the temple, right? That's what he says. He's there in the temple serving. And this is important. Why? Because Luke's going to begin his gospel in the temple with people worshiping. And if you go to Luke chapter 24, guess what? The people are in the temple worshiping. Worshiping now that a new king has come. The, 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 the true king has come. Jesus Christ. But scholars note that, guess what? This is an interesting place in the story for Luke to highlight. Because this time of burning incense is likely about 3 p.m. in the afternoon when the priest would normally go in there and burn that incense. And as the smoke went up, it would be a, a sign, a signal to the people to come and to pray. Luke is showing us that this is what faithful Israelites do. They come to the temple to worship and to pray. But maybe you wonder, like, well, well Blake, how does this actually give us certainty? Like, how does this serve Theophilus in giving him certainty about that this, this story is true and this coming Messiah is real? I think it's a reminder, as David Helm, Pastor David Helm notes, that God often uses these different signs of these people in this type of place to indicate God's at work. I mean, think about it. Before the temple, there was the tabernacle and in the days of Moses. And guess what? God's glory came and filled the tabernacle there, a sign of God among his people. Or consider the story of Solomon when the temple is dedicated. Guess what? The glory of God comes and fills the temple and God is there communing with his people or Think about the vision of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. He looks into the heavens and sees this heavenly temple where God's glory is there and he speaks and directs his people. You see, throughout the pages of Scripture, God has continually met his people in the temple to worship and to know him. Thus, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that this is where Luke's story will begin. In fact, it's a fitting place. It, it seems to fit God's order of things, that these kind of people that nobody else would choose in this type of place, right? It just begins to make sense. But notice what else. He's not just anywhere in the temple. Look at verse 7, or um, sorry, verse um, 9. Yeah, look what it says, and even in verse 10. To enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. It's at the hour of incense, verse 10. But verse 9, he's in the temple of the Lord burning incense. But did you notice how he got there? And this is what it says again, verse 9. Look at it again. He was chosen by Lot. Now listen, this isn't just like, man, that's Zachariah's lucky day. In fact, man, I, I would encourage you as God's people, we aren't lucky or, man, just happened by chance. God is sovereign. Like he orders the events of the days. I mean, just consider this for a moment. As priests, guess what? They're priestly different divisions. Notice that again. He says they were serving as his division was. Verse 8 was on duty. So he's a part of this division that's on duty. Scholars tell us that they would have only had about two weeks out of the year that they would have been on duty in this doctor division. And further, the first century historian Josephus says that there were about 8,000 priests during this time. And therefore, scholars conclude that what likely happened based upon historical records and what they understand at the time is that a priest would have had this opportunity to burn incense about once in their life, maybe twice. 
This isn't like, man, just happened, this is what happens, and this is... No. This is God ordering the life of Zechariah. And we can trust that, guess what, he'll order our lives too. You know what that means? When God wants you to be somewhere, or to do something, or to meet that someone, you can trust that he'll get you there. You can trust that when God wants you to do something... To be somewhere or to meet that someone, he will get you there. It's reminding us just to be faithful where we are, trusting the Lord to order our days. As the old saying goes, learn to bloom where you are planted. And if God wants you in another field, guess what? He'll dig you and I up and he'll put us in another field. But we can trust the Lord. And so this story, the people, the place, these are all signs or signatures of that's how God's been working. Man, this makes sense. This seems to follow what God's been doing. But that brings us to our third truth. See, there's a people and there's a place, but now there's this prophet, this person of significance that comes on the scene that gives us actual certainty. Verses 12 to 17. So again, we have the angel of the Lord stand on the right side of the altar of incense. Verse 11, verse 12. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name. John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared you hear about who this son was to be ultimately this this prophet like elijah who was to come well verse 14 says that his birth is going to bring about joy and gladness but he knows what he says many will rejoice and, and why is that well verse 15 says because he's going to be great before the lord and we're going to see his greatness if you walk through john's gospel he just has these moments where he's proclaiming the kingdom of god and there's just this greatness about his life but notice further verse 15 it says that he must not drink wine or strong drink. This echoes back to Numbers chapter 6, and you may write it down and read more about it. It's what's called a Nazarite vow. Now, often the Nazarite vow often included in the not cutting of the hair, but we don't have that here. But there indicates, right, it's just this reminder, John is being set apart. There's something unique about his life. And why is he again to avoid wine or strong drink? I think Ephesians 5 reminds us of that because alcohol so often takes the mind off the things of God. It, it, it distorts our view and our vision of life. And it seems to run contrary, again, specifically drunkenness, to being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so he says, listen, and notice what happens here. He's filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now, being filled with the Holy Spirit was often what happened with the prophets or maybe the judges in the book of Judges. You can hear about different times the Spirit comes upon them or even times of different kings, right? David talks about it. I'm filled with the Spirit as he writes in the Psalms. But then we come to the New Testament and guess what? Being filled with the Holy Spirit is a mark that someone's actually born again. Ephesians chapter 1 says if you have the Spirit of God, it's your seal guaranteeing that you are God's child to the day of your redemption, but how do we receive the Holy Spirit? Well, we hear the gospel. We repent, turn of our sins, and believe. But notice what John is. It says he's filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. It's different. It's part of God's divine choice of choosing John to use him. 
But it's also this reminder of the old covenant is passing away and the new covenant is coming. And John is here at this unique place and time in history. But notice what John's role is. Look what it says in verse 15 or verse 17. And he will go before him. He will go before this coming Messiah. And he's to give certainty to everyone. Now, listen, notice this idea, this idea of being one who goes before. You see, there's often what was known as a forerunner. All right. So when kings or very important people were coming to your village or town, they would have what was known as forerunners. And they would literally run out front, running down the path that the king or the dignitary was going to go on. One, to make sure the path was passable. Two, to be aware of those who might be threats one way or the other. And then three, to be a herald, to declare to everyone, the king's coming, the king's coming, the king's coming. It's John the Baptist. He's going before to make the rough places smooth by proclaiming the gospel, to warn those who do not repent that the, the, the one who is coming behind him has this threshing. And he's ready to thresh, right, and weed out those who simply proclaim outwardly but not inwardly to be born again. It's John who is this proclaimer that the king is coming and so he's filled with the holy spirit and so all of these markers tell us listen this gives us certainty that the one that's following this prophet this man must be the messiah the son of god i mean contemplate your own life for this morning for just a moment i think we all desire for our lives to matter don't we i mean who in this room doesn't want to make a difference like man i want my life to matter And John shows us the way that our lives are to matter. It is to go before the king and proclaim him to anyone and everyone that God brings in our path. No, but listen, our our time and place in history is different, right? John was there on the scene proclaiming the first time that Christ, the Messiah is here, the Messiah is here. He's come. But our role is different. We too, like John, are filled with the Holy Spirit, but we have a job or responsibility that we look now back to the cross, back to the empty tomb, back to the ascension, and we declaim to people, the King is coming again! Be prepared! Be warned! Be ready! The King is coming again! You see, this is part of our responsibility of being, in some sense, forerunners. No, we're not epic like John the Baptist, but beloved, we have a role. And therefore, Jesus says, whoever's least in the kingdom of God, I tell you, is greater than John. We are filled with God's Spirit to proclaim that the kingdom is coming. Look further. The fourth one, I think, is drawn out that gives us certainty is the purpose. The purpose of Christmas that gives us certainty. It's, It's verse 16 and 17. Hear it again. And he, speaking of John, will, notice what it says here two times in the text, turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now the angel here is quoting from Malachi chapter 4 verse 6, which is interesting. Because in our English Bible, guess what? This is in fact the very last book the last chapter, and the last sentence before we start the New Testament. You see, the people of Jew, the Jewish people believed that Malachi was this last prophet that came on the scene, and there was about 400 years of silence between Malachi and the other, his contemporaries, and now the coming of John the Baptist. And here he comes, and, and look at me, what, again. Here Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, again, these are the last two verses of our English Bible before the New Testament comes. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. 
You see, Malachi had prophesied there was going to come one like Elijah, right? It doesn't mean that Elijah's actually coming back. I know there's just some thoughts of, man, this is Elijah again. He, he didn't die, and so he's come back. No, it's just a similar way of speaking like there's one coming like King David again. We don't believe King David actually came, right? Jesus came, right? So there's some sense in which he comes in the spirit, the power of Elijah. But his role is to declare to people, guess what? The end is coming, the end is coming, and before the end of coming, before the time comes, what does God do before He sends judgment? Did you notice it back in Luke chapter 1, verses 16 to 17? Two different times, He is called to turn the people back to God. How does He do this? By doing the very thing that you're hearing this morning, the preaching of God's Word. It's this moment of God warning, right? Before the judgment comes, he calls the people to turn and repent. Do you, do you see it? God would be right, yes, in judging us and bringing judgment upon us. But before the judgment comes, God brings to you and I the word of God that we might hear it and repent. That we might hear of God's goodness and his love, his mercy and his grace. And maybe we wonder, how could I really stake my life on this? How could I be so certain that I would trust my eternity to the words here? cross beloved it's the full display of god's love and his justice his wrath and his love it's where grace and mercy and justice and all of those meet fully in his son and it urges you and i to look to the story to hear the truth of this prophet and his purpose to call out to us to turn and maybe you're here and you wonder like well notice what he says again at the end of our 17, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Do you hear it again? You might wonder, how, how could I be ready? Or how could I be prepared for the Lord to return? How could I get myself ready to face God? It was a great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, who said, The only fit state in which they can come is that of sinking themselves, abandoning all the idea of helping Christ, and coming in all their natural impotence and guilt, and taking Christ to be their all in all. In other words, the only way to be ready is to deny yourself. To humble yourself and look for your need of Christ. Think about the lyrics. Just as I am and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot. To thee whose blood can cleanse each spot. Oh, Lamb of God, I what? I come. But it's not easy. Men and women will not easily come just as they are. No, we want to clean up ourselves. We want to polish our lives. In fact, what we want is certainty in our own ability and our own good works. But that's not the story of the gospel, beloved. The story of the gospel is there is no certainty if you keep looking to yourself. After all, how good is good enough? What will you do for all the bad things you have done? No, the certainty of the gospel, the way to be ready for the Lord, the way to respond to John's message to be prepared to, the, to be prepared for the Lord and his coming is to acknowledge that the only certainty you have is not in your own worth and righteousness, but in his. You hear the old song, Rock of Ages, right? When we sing those words, nothing in my hands I bring simply to that cross I what? I cling. There's nothing that will make me right. So today, if you would be ready for the Lord, then you and I must do what is most foreign to our hearts to confess that we are not able to come as we are. Not in our own goodness and works, that is. 
But we can come just as we are when we humble ourselves and acknowledge that we have nothing to bring to God. But we simply call out, Son of David, have mercy on me. God, forgive me. Cleanse me. I wonder, will you do that this hour? Are you willing this morning to humble yourself and confess your dependence upon Jesus Christ? If so, beloved, you may have certainty. But if you rely upon your own good works, your own charisma, your own deeds, Jesus says that you and I in doing that would be a fool like one who builds his house upon the sand. And there will become a day of judgment when our houses will fall with a great crash. There is but one solid rock, and his name is Jesus Christ. Now, we might hear all this story and think, man, surely Zechariah hears that and think, wow, what a story. I can't wait. But the truth is, Zechariah has some doubts. And that brings us to our last truth and this, this hope that the presence of Christmas gives us certainty. The presence. Notice whose presence we're speaking of. Not just a present, a gift, but someone's presence. Pick up if you would, beginning in verse 18 to 25 of Luke 1. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and, they kept, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Zechariah has an angel of the Lord standing there before him. He obviously, from the own testimony there of the angel, that he has been praying, he and his wife. And yet when God delivers the message, he doubted. Does that feel familiar? Strike you as familiar to your own life? How often, right, do we pray and, and others pray with us and we ask them to pray and yet we so often find ourselves doubting failing to trust the very Word of God revealed to us in these Scriptures. But why is this message so certain? Did you hear it again? Verse 19, And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. The reason why you and I can have rock-solid certainty about this coming Messiah, rock-solid certainty about this Gospel, is because it's come from God Himself. This is no words of a mere man or a church or a pope or a pastor or a preacher or a doctor or a reverend. This is the living Word of God. That's why. That's why we have certainty. It's the truth of the Gospel. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. It's God who initiates the plan of salvation. It's God who sustains the plan of salvation. But guess what? God, He, he disciplines Zachariah. He does. He's, 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 he's mute and likely... Scholars believe that he's also deaf. But guess what? God still shows amazing grace because when the time comes, Elizabeth conceives and bears a child. It was Thomas Watson, the 1600s Puritan pastor, who said this, a weak faith can cling to a strong Christ. A weak faith 
can cling to a strong Christ. I'm telling you, that has been just like a bomb to my soul this week. You see, Zechariah doesn't have a perfect faith, but he has a perfect Savior. The church ought to say, hallelujah! I know that story. Are you singing my song now, preacher? I know that well. I don't know about you, but I feel that in my soul. Like a weak faith can cling to a strong Christ. Listen how the story closes. Elizabeth's words, verse 25, it's only recorded that she says here in these moments, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. That's the hope of the gospel. That the Lord does for us what we can never do for ourselves, and that is to take away our reproach. In the coming of this child and ultimately the one to whom he proclaims, the good news of the gospel is that you and I, though our sins are many, his mercy is more. It is the hope of this gospel that the Lord could do for you and I what we could not do for ourselves. He can save us from our sins. He can cleanse us from every sin and shame. He can give us certainty. He can take away your reproach. All the things that people know about you. All the places you've been. All the things you've said. All the things you've seen. All the things you've done. Forgiven at the cross. It's the hope of the gospel. Is that your story? The Lord has done it for me. The Lord's taken away my reproach. The Lord's taken away my sin. To the unbeliever in the room this morning. This past Thursday, it was getting close to time to eat, and we were at my mom's house, and a couple of my nephews walked in, and our little girl walked over to them, and when she saw them, she, she said, who invited you guys? It wasn't like in a mean way, but she, she just wanted to know, and they looked at her, and they said, well, Nenny, of course. And it struck me in that moment. Why were any of us here? Because mom had invited us. You see, this morning, the invitation of the gospel comes to you. Why are you here this morning? I mean, you could be a million other places. Why are you here? The invitation of the gospel comes to you. The good news that you can be forgiven. You say, Blake, you don't know about me, where I've been. Yep, guess what? These people seem disqualified too. God uses them. Blake, you don't know about all the places. Well, guess what? You're in this place to hear this good news of the gospel. You say, Blake, listen, I'm not sure about, man, like my life. It's just... Guess what? The good news is that you can be made ready and prepared, not by looking to yourself and your own certainty, but looking to Christ and the cross. You see, that is the hope that we have. It's because of the presence of the one who declares these words. It's the hope of the gospel. I urge you this morning. When it comes time to step into the kingdom, why will you be there? If you look to yourself, there is no certainty. There is no hope. It's foolish. It's sinking sand. But if you will look to the gospel and the certainty of the one who is coming, you can have that hope. To the church this morning. Uh, listen, we hear this story and it's epic of how God is ordering the days and bringing about these prophecies from 400 years ago and this one coming, the power and spirit of Elijah. And man, we could just have a tendency to say, man, that's our God and put our feet up and rest. And, and listen, we ought to rest and hope in this. But let us not move to laziness. Did you hear it again? Just, just briefly. Verse 13. But the angel said to Zechariah, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Church, have you given up praying? Have you given up praying? Have you given up believing in the very things you're praying for? Have you begun to doubt that God could save that child or grandchild? 
Have you just grown weary in praying and believing that God's able to bring revival to our church? Have you, have you just, are you, are you doubting just for a moment that God actually hears the prayers that he, he hears? Well, we didn't have time today, but you need to read the book of Daniel in light of this. Like, there's so much echoing of Daniel. And it, it was in the story of Daniel that the, the angel shows up and he says, Listen, God heard your prayer the very first moment you prayed, and there was all this spiritual warfare and all these things happened, but there was never a doubt. But guess what? Daniel didn't know that. Zechariah and Elizabeth, listen, they, they, they don't, all those years of barrenness and heartache and reproach, they don't know God's heard the prayer. God's going to answer. Some of us, listen, we just need encouragement from other believers in this room. Brother and sister, I'm with you. I will be my brother and my sister's keeper. I will keep praying even when your weak knees grow weak. When you grow weary in prayer, I'm going to keep laboring. See, that's part of this church body. We ought to be calling out to God. God, might you do for some in this church the very things you did for Zachariah and Elizabeth? Give them a child. Do we believe that God hears and answers prayer, church? hope and pray we do there's a god who still hears and answers prayer let it be an encouragement and a compelling to this church to not grow weary in doing good i hope and pray that as hearing this word that you have certainty like man god is doing a great thing that he's been doing since the beginning of genesis this strikes a chord god is at work and that's why you and i can have certainty that the one who's coming next week as brother todd comes to proclaim is truly the Messiah. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you that I have your word to cling to. Oh God, if it was me, a mere man, a mere mortal, I would spout so much foolish nonsense of my own accord. But thank you, God, it's your word. Your word is sufficient. I thank you for it. I thank you that you've given it. God, I thank you that your word is just as certain as the angel Gabriel's word from the presence of God. We have your word recorded by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we trust this word this morning. I pray, O oh God, that by the power of your spirit that you would give the gift of faith that those who might hear this might have certainty this is the truth of the gospel. Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, would you just strengthen and awaken us, encourage those who have grown weary in their praying, Father, thank you that you hear prayer. You hear our prayers. God, let us not believe the lies of the enemies or the time of the ticking clock that tells us God hasn't heard. He doesn't care. He doesn't see you. Father, instead, let us cling to your word to say, my God hears and he answers prayer. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that despite all that Zachariah and Elizabeth had gone through, they didn't give up hope. They kept living faithfully. They didn't throw in the towel. And in your perfect timing, God, you heard and answered their prayer. God, encourage us to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. We pray these things for the King who is coming, Jesus. And the church said, Amen, 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 Amen. How could you not respond to this gospel? Amen? amen. Who can resist this King? Who cannot come and bow before Him this day? My goodness! Is there anyone greater? I mean, you heard the King. The King 